From Los Angeles, California, on the MTV Podcast Network, this is North Mollywood. I'm Alex Papadimus. Our guest today in the studio, the creators of Halt and Catch Fire, Christopher Rogers and Christopher Cantwell. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but you have the same first name. So oh I'm going God. to ask you both to speak in turn and so that people can identify who is speaking as they go through this podcast. I'm Chris Cantwell. And I'm Chris Rogers. Make a note of it. Memorize those voice prints. And sitting to my left, because we've got four people in here and that demands a different seating formation, she is both the thing and the thing that gets us to the thing, a brick and a window, Molly Lambert. Hey, everybody. Welcome to North Mollywood. Welcome, Chris's plural. Hello. Thanks Hi. For us. Thanks for having us. Halt and Catch Fire is an AMC drama about a group of characters in the 1980s navigating their way through the personal computing revolution. With Mackenzie Davis as computer prodigy Cameron Howe, Scoot McNary and Carrie Bichet as Gordon and Donna, a couple who are both involved in computers, Lee Pace as Joe McMillan, a Steve Jobs figure in season three, who is a man of mystery, and Toby Huss as John Bosworth, the spiritual mentor of the gang. This is the uh, the day of the season finale of the third season of Halt and Catch Fire. That's right. My favorite show. Your favorite and show? Favorite show. Yeah, oh your favorite God. show? That's right. Yeah. We that's do good. not say that to everybody. We are the Halt and Catch Fire I mean, we can hive. go back and check and see if you've said it to other people, but that's good we to know that you don't. Yeah. We probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> we probably won't. It's a lot of podcasts. You can go. I've, I've said it to people conversationally. You okay. can talk to people that know me. Okay. I am insufferable about it. I go on <laughs> and on. Good. And that's good. Well, thank you. Season three of Halt and Catch Fire has been a fantastic journey for everybody did you guys go into it thinking this is return of the jedi return of the jedi <laughs> in what way could season three be described as return of the jedi couple oh, man. i don't know i mean we you know so season three for us at least was kind of personally remarkable in that it was our first chance to kind of be showrunners of the show i mean it was it was a season we felt incredibly lucky to get uh, after another season, frankly, we felt incredibly lucky to get. But, you know, when they kind of told us, you know, your, your showrunner is moving on to another show, John Lisko, who we loved. Um, and as it turned out, all of our writers from the first two seasons were, were decamping for other projects. Uh, you know, we knew we were going to have a huge ownership over what happened. So personally, it, w- it was a really big deal for us. And um, at least that's how we started it. You know, we, we, we actually went out to Joshua Tree for a while to, like, brainstorm what this could be. Uh, and, and we came back with a document of, of ideas, and, and we hired a great slate of new writers. So uh, I'd say this is absolutely the most kind of personal season for us. But uh, did it achieve Return of the Jedi status? That's a great oh, question. Yeah. yeah, I feel like we have our own speeder bike chase in there. I just don't want to make anything that comes next like one of the, the weird prequels. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, okay. be the We're going Ewok right movies. to Force Awakens. What was in the Joshua Tree document? Well, as know. many people who the, go the, out to the, Joshua Tree and come back yeah. with a document, <laughs> uh, we spent three days out there, and it was it was we, it was our, our mission was twofold. It was to uh, talk about how we would run the show, the two of us, because mm-hmm. we had never done that without Jonathan, and then uh, uh, talk about 
ideas we had for season three. And we had started down that road because the network wants you to come in when they're deciding whether or not to renew and talk about where would season three go. And we had some very high level mm-hmm. things. And so we talked, you know, but that was like a page of stuff. So we just brought a bunch of library books out there and, and dug deep into the technology um, of both, um, you know, what was going on in the, the birth of the internet and then uh, it, at the birth of, um, I guess, online shopping or e-tail or that first kind of e-commerce wave that came in the mid-80s. So we looked into that and then we just looked at the characters and yeah. where are they, where do we want to take them, you know, what are they poised to do, what's something interesting that we haven't done with these guys and girls yet. And, and, and I guess the conversation just kind of spun from there. But it was a long document. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun, too, because, I mean, I, I, th- I think you and I felt for the first time that we could kind of do anything just because, uh, you know, the decision was going to be entirely up to us, and, you know, we just kind of really felt lucky to have this third season, so, like, the desire was to leave everything on the table, and so, so I think we really, uh, you know, put down a lot of ideas, many of which made it in. Yeah. As you will see this evening. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> or in three days on your DVR. Did you guys take mushrooms in the desert, like Donna? We got so high. Oh, man. No, we, you know what we did do? I want to tell this story. We went down to that... There's, we, we stayed on some street. It was a nice little house we got mm-hmm. from Airbnb. And then we went down to that... We went to Pappy and Harriet's, which was awesome. Right. But then the next night, we went oh. to the like rough yes. saloon that's like on the main strip of 62. And we ordered something called jalapeno bottle caps. Oh, man. As an appetizer. <laughs> And we drank a lot of beer and ate so many of those jalapeno bottle caps, and they destroyed us. Yeah, they, we, we, were, we were driving home very unhappy. We What's a jalapeno us. bottle cap? It's, it's just a sliced pickled is. jalapeno yeah. fried. Oh. And so it's like, it's like you, harmless enough. You know, you but think like you fried pickles, but if you eat a hundred of them. Um, you're dead. Yes, you're dead. We were, we, were in, we were in a lot of pain. In intimate ways. And there was that shirtless yeah. guy that was on stage. Remember the band? Yes. That guy was awesome. Yeah. What was um, he singing? I don't remember, but he, he was just like a show unto himself. You know, one of those. They it were like the really Sultans good. of Swing, you know, like they were like the local guys getting it done, you know. I mean, it, it was, was pretty good. There was a beauty to it. Yeah. But out, out of those humble beginnings came this season. Yeah. Um, it's entirely fueled by jalapeno bottle caps. This is, this is <laughs> what happens. That Try sounds like bottle shorthand caps. for peyote if I've ever heard <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. We were just popping jalapeno bottle caps left and right. So is it always, I, I have this, I get the sense and the way that you're describing this season, like you've said a couple of times just in the length of this conversation that you were lucky to have a third season. Mm-hmm. It, it, like, are you at square one? Have you been at square one every time in terms of plot? Like, do you come into it just like blank when you're, like, when you're done with a season? Like, then you have to start to figure out like where it goes next? I would say that in the writer's room for whatever season we're working on, some ideas present themselves by the end of the season, you know, like where there are side conversations of like, well, that would be kind of a cool place to go in the next season. And so you have like little pieces like that, little fragments. And, and you know, the mutiny, you know, Donna going to work for mutiny at the end of season one was, was a fragment. And then we kind of built upon that and we went in and talked to the network. And, uh, and, then we, and then we went in and just found that story in the writer's room. I think this season was a little different just because, yeah, there were things that presented themselves, you know, at the end of season two, they all get on the plane and go to California, um, you know, Joe included. Um, and, and so we had that piece. But I feel like Chris and I actually going off and doing a lot of story brainstorming ourselves was new to the process. And we brought it back to the room mm-hmm. and we weren't like, hey, this is the show we're writing. We just said, hey, this is kind of the, the document to beat. 
let's let's tear it apart and come up with better ways to do this or different ways and and a lot of that stuff made it in but in different incarnation or we changed some things but um there were some major moves in there that we really liked and, and they ended up in some way shape or form into this into the season yeah we i mean i think we really subscribe to the idea that at the end of every season you gotta you know let walter white hit gale with the car you know what i mean like put yourself in a hole and, and try to find a way out of it so we, we try to do that episodically by by using up our story the minute we have it and you know for my money episode six seven and eight of this season could all have been the, the final episode of the season uh and we try to do that with the season with the seasons themselves um just because I, I think that just spawns the the best and newest ideas i mean the, the minute we know what it's going to be i think the audience isn't far behind so we try to keep ourselves operating from that place of, of not having anything to create from because i think that's that's where like the surprises come from so you don't have a like Here's where all these characters are 20 years from now. End game in mind? No. no, no, we have no idea. If anything, we've reached it in a way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, they're here. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's really. But that's exciting. I mean, that, yeah. that that really is the thrill of it. I mean, it, it yeah. is going in and being like, oh my god, we broke up Cameron and Donna, or like, oh my god, Ryan's dead. Like, you know, it's like, what are we gonna do in the next episode? And yeah. if you can bring yourself up to that challenge, I mean, that's that's the high wire act. That's that's the juice of doing um, this. I was really not. I don't want to say I was excited about a character dying, uh, but <laughs> but you were. <laughs> you got a little there thrilling. I, I felt think bad about I just kind of yelled out loud. I was like, "They did the thing Mad Men never did. <laughs> they did oh. the thing Mad Men always was threatening to do with like the balcony." Oh right, in the elevator shaft. Or just you know, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, where he almost the elevator opens and he almost, yeah, that was just, a weird. Thing. You know, everybody was waiting for somebody to jump off a building, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, I wasn't expecting it at all <laughs> on your show. So it was, and then I felt very heartbroken. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it was a sad thing. I mean, I think uh, for us, I mean, this was that was something that actually came out of the Joshua Tree trip, um, and then went back and forth. You know, we talked about. Joe being at the top of his game and kind of a guru, you know, uh, espousing these Coens, you know, at the top of his his anti-virus hill. Yeah, when did you kind of picture Joe in a wetsuit and go... Joe in a wetsuit? I think that was kind of evolved. You know, we we ended him in season two and, like, he kind of had a return to form in, like, the black suit and he had the slick back hair. But we thought, "Mm, would that work in 86 in in Silicon Valley and wouldn't he adopt something new and so we really just leaned into the Steve Jobs of it all that like that that cult of personality that was really beginning around that time in technology especially so you know it felt like it felt like a new look for him and it also felt like a something he would do Um, especially someone who was just kind of so comfortable and also so disconnected from his own passion at the top of the season right he's got his big company He's 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 the big name, um, he, you know. He can do the theatrical presentations, but there's something in him that's a little dormant, and we wanted to activate that. And Ryan, you know, really became that character. So we we, did, we talked about a protege character that would that would kind of reactivate Joe and and maybe make him a little dangerous again. Um, and then we also talked about how all of our characters are so insanely ambitious and so willfully throwing themselves headlong into each other and and into into you know, these kind of really conflict-laden situations that we finally said, what if there was a character that didn't make it? You know, what if there was a character where we actually saw the toll of that on that person to the utmost level? And I think out of that was was Ryan. And for a while, Ryan was going to live, and for a while, Ryan was not. And, yeah. and then I think by the time we were breaking seven and eight, it was we, we, we had decided that that felt like the right conclusion for him. Did you ever think about Ryan and Joe having a romantic relationship? Because... 
I love that scene where Gordon is asking him yeah. about it, and he just keeps going like, "What? I, I what are you asking?" Yeah, like, just, that, that's like a, a sleeper favorite scene. Of mine. Oh, I, I so love good. just the. A great thing that happens in the third season is you've had two seasons of kind of backstory for these people. So they've got all this kind of shared history, and and sometimes you happen upon something that you're like, have Gordon and Joe ever talked about Joe's sexuality? Have we, have we ever addressed that? And when the answer is no, uh, and you have two actors like that, you know, and I think especially of Scoot McNary there, just because that's something they found on the day, the way that they kind of tease that out. Um, and they have a relationship with each other. I, th- I think you can get really great moments. Uh, oh, so, just the way it went on, just like yeah, oh my god! And you know, it, I, I'll say it wasn't scripted that way. And I, I think they just found something that was kind of irresistible. Um, but that's also just one of the scenes on the show where I was like, "This is a great show. It's for grown-ups, and I love it." Oh, <laughs> it feels like I'm watching a great '70s movie all the time. And oh, that's, I oh, just that's good. High, praise. high praise, yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah. it's also like you've got these five of the greatest actors in the world and I love all of them so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're all so good at playing the characters and just I want to watch them in every scene. There's nobody that I'm not excited to see every time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, by by season three, there's so much kind of chemistry and history between all of them. Uh, I just I love seeing them all paired up in all the different ways you can possibly. Yes, we have lots of different permutations. <laughs> yeah. We feel yeah. we, we feel that same way. We we really believe in kind of letting our players play, and I mean that's that's our actors who we think are you know who we'd put up against anybody else's starting lineup, and that's our writers. You know, we we really try to empower our individual writers to to express what you know they uniquely want to bring to the show, and and. Uh, that's the thrill of it for us. I mean, the joy of it for us is just being like, this is a new color we get to add to the show because we brought this person into it. Did you feel like you had um, brought fate into being when you found out Mackenzie was going to be in the Blade Runner sequel? Ah. <laughs> we should tell the story of how right before we left for the pilot, yeah, we went we went to see Blade Runner at the Million Dollar Theater downtown, part of the Cinespia. Yeah, they're screening. doing like a revival screening, and so they there. showed it at the theater, which is in the movie. And we went with our wives, and this was like the day before we were going to leave to go shoot the pilot. Yeah. Really, yeah. And really close. It's like the last thing we were going to go do. And Mackenzie Davis was there dressed exactly like Pris, Daryl Hannah's character. And it was perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, like cosplay I mean, perfect. Like, like it was Pris getting in line for popcorn. But there was this funny thing where, you know, we were new. It was our first show. And we had just cast her, and she'd probably found out like the day before. And I was in the beer line about, like, eight people behind her. And I could tell she saw me, and, like, I think, you know, and I had clearly seen her, but we were both kind of trying to pretend that we hadn't seen each other because I don't think we were ready to, like, be human beings with each each other. other, Like, we didn't know what was appropriate. Uh, But, yeah, we we like to think this was in the stars, and I, I think she'll... I don't know what her role is in the new movie, but I think... I do know that she probably doesn't know. She'll kill it. Yeah. 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 I mean, also, just... uh, you know, the moment you see her in the pilot, you're like, this is the coolest person in the world. Yes. And she has such a like Ripley from Alien kind of vibe about her. She's yeah. just, she's so great. And uh, yeah, that's just wanted to say that. <laughs> <She is laughs> Mackenzie, wonderful. we love you. She is great. How much? How much did those, once you started seeing those performances, uh, Mackenzie's and also Carrie's uh, as, as Donna, like, they, they were, like with the, did you, did the plot shift once you realized what you had in those two actresses? Like, did you sort of think like, oh, because they became, they become sort of co-protagonists by season two, but it's not always clear if that was like, if that was in the plan to begin with. Like, obviously Cameron's really important from the beginning and, you know, mm-hmm. they all have agency and sort of thoughts and feelings. We and knew, stuff, we knew, we had loaded up Donna with characteristics that 
we wanted to fulfill on, right? That we, you know, from the first episode in the pilot that she's an engineer, and and we didn't want to just keep her as Gordon's wife working at TI. We wanted to bring her into the main story at some point. We just didn't know how when we started. Um, you know, when we saw them, the first scene they have together, I think, is in episode four of season one, and when we saw them on screen together, and this is true for a lot of the characters and way that the way the story goes is you just go well that's, whoa that's great and the same thing with toby and Mackenzie. you know when we, we see the two of them you're like wow that's that's fantastic and so you just start to write towards where the story wants to go and i think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't do that um so it, it just you know what you find yourself gravitating towards and having fun discussing in the writer's room um usually that's usually the right thing that's the right thing to write so um you know we just followed that and that kind of gave us the the transition that kind of happened over season one and season two and thankfully we have a subject matter where reinvention is is a central theme to it which Mm -hmm. is just things completely being overturned overnight um so we felt like we could do that that was definitely one of the things in the pilot too where i was like what is this show (laughs) i was like there's a wife character and she's got (laughs) three-dimensional properties (laughs) this is different than all the other shows uh and especially just Carrie is so great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just the moment she fixes the speak and spell, I was like, this show is, is interesting and doing things I didn't expect from yeah, a show I, like I this. I think that her performance, one, demanded it. But, but two, I, you know, I, I like to talk about how I, I think, you know, we're both in our early 30s. So, you know, the shows that made us want to do this are, are kind of those difficult man shows, you know, starting with The Sopranos, obviously going up through things like Mad Men and Breaking Bad that we really admired. Um, but we kind of felt like we had an opportunity to try to move past those uh, as that first season went along. You know, it's a show that can very much feel like another anti-hero show. Um, and so we kind of wanted to explode that. And, you know, the wife that kills all the husband's fun was, I, I think, another bad vestige of, of that first wave that we, we felt like we could do better than. Well, you guys also both have really cool wives. We do. We do. <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> when matters. I met your wives, I was like, oh, okay, it all makes sense now. <laughs> Yeah, you I guys feel like have cool wives who yeah. do stuff that's cool. And <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, it shows. Not to, I mean, to get off the high horse for, I will spend a very short period of time on this horse. But like, what, what a disservice you do yourself when you when you have someone like Carrie Bechet or have someone like Mackenzie Davis, and you just just write some uh, some kind of accessory role to to the performances you're getting from your men. So I mean, I, I think it, I'd love to take credit, but I think it just defies logic well uh, my friends that way. i have some friends that are you know female engineers and they all love halt and catch fire because oh, it's also the only show that has female engineers and programmers and one of the things i loved about it when it started was it was i think around the same time silicon valley started mm. and that was getting kind of some blowback for not having any female characters and they were very committed to this sort of like well that's just how it is and then my friends who are engineers were like well i'm a lady and i'm an engineer so Here i am yeah. i must yeah. not exist <laughs> and i have a friend who's an engineer she probably wouldn't want me to out her identity but she talks about cameron and donna just all the time as sort of archetypes oh, of of people that. and she's kind of says sometimes like oh i feel like donna because like i meet these camerons and they're like ah the rules don't apply to me and i'm like ah, i'm so tired from sexism <laughs> like oh, i uh and yeah and I just I think that that is just one of the many great things about the show oh, it, is, it is never it never batters you over the head with that stuff it's never like here I am making a point that is political but you know it's very much woven into the fabric of tech history yeah it's definitely there I mean there were more per capita I think we mentioned this last time we were was the more there were more 
per capita women getting computer science and computer engineering degrees then than there are now. Um, and and I, I think that um, we've met enough people in our research and through yeah. you know meeting people for tech consultant roles or just talking to people and get their stories that 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 there were women who took their companies public um, on the stock market, you know, and, and, and it was a, it was a, you know, computer company. Um, we have met those programmers. Um, we have met those people that, that were there at that time doing those things. I think sometimes um, they just kind of get pushed aside a little bit um, by the prevailing narrative of the so-called winners, you know, again, the people who kind of, that we remember, the ones that just kind of come off your off the top of your head instantly, you know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, this person, this person, you know. Yeah, and I think it's the enduring great shame of the way computers were marketed that, you know, they kind of became toys for boys and, and, you know, women were kind of forced out of the narrative of what it was to be a computer person. Well, it's also like women were programmers yeah. until they decided programming was yeah, a creative exactly. thing. When it became then, like an yeah. important role that yeah. all of a sudden they weren't. It was always women because it was seen as like a secretarial job that you have to like enter in code. It's like rote work and it's like film editing. It's like Mm -hmm. something that people thought was boring, so they let women do it. And then (laughs) by the time they realized it it could be also creative. Mm -hmm. No, it was was the first big like representation failure, you know, where where there was some great quote about how there are no women in computer commercials that aren't in bikinis, you know, (laughs) and and that just, that sucks because I think that just really killed off a generation of people that might have been great at this. Well, it's also this thing too with like, you know, Tech Valley now where you're like every time we have the opportunity to sort of make a new world and invent something from scratch why do we just keep building the same world over and over again Mm. in a new place you know it's Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. the last uh i don't know where the sentence is gonna go so i'll just (laughs) cut it off now did you take some jalapeno jalapeno coffee One of my favorite moments uh, this season was the episode where Gordon and Cameron beat Mario together. Mm, yes. Because yeah. it was just something, you know, just great about watching those two actors just sit on a couch and, and talk to each other and hang out and, yeah, and just see them be friends. Mm-hmm. And they can be friends when they have a shared goal. Yeah. Well, they come into it with the sh- like they're she comes into it because like she's the only person who's as good at coding as Gordon is. Like that's I, I watched the pilot again recently, just oh, so, you know, yeah, thinking yeah. about it, and like that's that's how that's how she enters the picture in the first place, right? So there, it's established that they're sort of intellectual equals, and so they, of course they would get obsessed with this one, just <laughs> right. incredibly foolish time well, wasting activity. I love the thing too of like kids go outside, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> and just, right, and they bought it for his daughter. Yeah, and, yeah, they're just we're, using we're better it. at the boss. Level. It was a family so. present. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They but had I, not been on screen together since. Well, they've been on screen together in season two, but only twice. Mm-hmm. Um, once is when he blows up her company and she's extremely upset. And then the other is when he comes in looking for Donna in the finale mm-hmm. and Joni's run away. That was it. Um, just because Gordon was so isolated in season two. Um, they'd had one nice scene in uh, season one where they're waiting for Joe to come back from New York and they're just in Joe's apartment mm-hmm. and it was a great scene and we it, that was a major goal of ours from the beginning was to get the two of them together in some way and build a relationship uh, there because we just hadn't seen that before and we thought it was interesting 
How many TVs did you look at before you found the perfectly wrong TV for that living room? <laughs> the the giant. Well, we wanted we wanted a big we wanted Gordon to go buy a big screen TV, yeah. and then we did the research, and it was like the one you could get that was huge was that rear projection, <laughs> red, green, blue light on this, and it, we we saw that thing, and we were like, oh my god, it's uh, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was it functional. Because they play it, they play yeah. the duck hunt stuff. I think they is got it working. The, the, yeah. duck, the duck hunt stuff is practical. Uh, yeah. Michael Morris, the director, wanted that to be practical when she's shooting the ducks and when he's shooting the ducks in that episode. That's on their little TV, but on the big one, I don't know if that's a burn-in or not. But um, I don't even remember. But but it was a giant, giant. It's monstrosity. one of those things. Like every now and again, you know, we try to keep ourselves out of like too many '80s in jokes. But I think when that came up, we just said it has to be that. Like, yeah. let's, let's get that. If we have to have this thing. It's the same thing gotten, with the, yeah. Yes. The robot butler was also a thing where we were like, we've got to put this in the show. <laughs> I want to all the footage of it series. forever. Yeah. That it really butler. was. Yes. Where's the robot butler now? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great trophy for somebody if they can dig that out of the Atlanta storehouse. It's I'm somewhere. Sure it I will yeah. say that if you're watching the finale tonight, it is, it is hidden somewhere in episode nine. It Ooh. saves the day. Do you know where it is? <laughs> no. I yeah. feel like uh, you guys have a lot of talking heads on the soundtrack, and I, yeah. I was thinking about it, just like, oh, this is like the talking head show. It's like <laughs> the smart 80s. I like that. I like that comparison. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll take that. It's, like it's, it's really in, yeah. intelligent, but it's unpretentious, and it's also, you can dance to it. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good way to describe uh, it. I like that. Yeah. We uh, like to be the the art rock of, yeah. the, of the 1980s. Well, I also love like Cameron sort of pivoting from punk to post-punk and new wave. It's my one of my favorite. I mean, I, you know, Thomas Golovich, who does the music supervision on your show, is mm-hmm. a genius. We he agree. Is, yes, and, and he, just the evolution of sound for every character is something he's always dialing in uh, with us, and and uh, it, it's great to it's great to get those tracks. It's actually kind of a big piece of how we prepare for the season is is he'll make these great kind of playlists for us, and then we pass those on to the actors, and we make those available to the editors, and so we're really all kind of choosing from a palette that he kind of establishes us for the top, and you know we'll have pet things every now and again that we really want to try to get into the show, and. Uh, we'll write in or fight for, but but he's so responsible for kind of starting us in a great place where all the choices are good choices. It's always a lot of like kind of left field choices or things mm-hmm. that aren't just like the most obvious song yeah. or the most yeah. obvious like it's this year now, so it's like people listen to songs <laughs> from a few years before right. that from yeah. 1982. That was key. And I, that was key. Yeah. Did you uh, bigfoot him on anything in particular? You're like, no, it has to be this song from my youth that means a lot to me. Oh, is there anything yeah. in there that's like? That I think Alex who is knows leading you? you towards something. <laughs> no, I'm not actually. Not. No. Well, we had a conversation about uh, the Graceland moment. Where oh, yeah, that was a weird one. I it was that was not tempt in, um, but it was like, what would Joe be listening to? That's exactly it. Right, yeah. and it was like it was what would Joe be listening to? And and uh, we've never seen Joe code. And so it was just an interesting moment. So we wanted something unexpected there, and I think it just it just worked. Yeah. It works um, great. And but I'm that not was on Thomas's that was on Thomas's mixtape. Was it? Yeah, yeah I think it was. Um, and I then, just thought yeah. of my dad in that moment. To be honest, well, I think like, everybody thinks like, yeah, of their dad, dad except for me because yeah. I'm not a big Graceland person. Yeah. Uh, there's the Graceland moment where Joe is listening to a song from Graceland that, whose name I won't know. 
It's boy possible. in the bubble, yeah, boy in the bubble. right. Yeah. And he's sort of, and yeah, and you're seeing him. He's dialed in. He's coding for yeah. the. It is the mm-hmm. first time you've seen him, and he's like, he's learned to code in part, I think, out of like admiration that for was, Cameron. Mm-hmm. He wants to. The, the, that's the thing that he can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a yeah, but I mean, you mentioned like dads. Like that's such a dad record. This is oh the first God, thing yeah. that Molly and I ever argued about was whether oh. or not Paul Simon sucks. Oh, and wow. specifically those records, those two records, because I'm a big I ride I, but for I think Graceland. I also said like you can't separate it from your own nostalgia. Yeah. For whatever it reminds you of. That's and true. Maybe you had a cool dad like mine who liked the Talking Heads more than ah. Graceland. <laughs> no, the Talking Heads is like my dad's favorite band, but my dad also really liked Graceland. I associate that with like, because that's also such a dad record. Well, I associate about it being with like, dad. Yeah. Yeah. my dad loves Graceland. My father in law hates Graceland, loves Simon and Garfunkel. Feels like Graceland and the solo Paul Simon stuff is a huge betrayal of that original. I kind of remember trying to score that scene and we. we couldn't find something that was quite right and in specifically thinking of my dad telling me that Paul Simon's lyric losing love is like a window in your heart everyone can see you're blown apart was like one of the most poetic lyrics ever written and so that like just led me right to that was uh, was great and I, I gotta say that the line in that angels in the architecture spinning in infinity or something like that is like a strong argument for Paul Simon does not suck. Those <laughs> those two records, and I, I ride for the one after it too. This Molly is where Grimm I went. Rhythm of the Saints. Rhythm of the Saints. <laughs> wow. Okay. Rhythm of the Saints yes. might be better. It's not that the better. music is bad. Wow. It's that he stole it from Los Lobos. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and then told them, "You'll ne- no one will ever believe you. I'm fucking Paul Simon." <laughs> That's not untrue. I wanted to ask one just really hot, controversial question about the show mm. for the way out. Let's do it. Uh, is Cameron a libertarian? <laughs> Great question. That's interesting. Is yeah. she the first Silicon Valley libertarian? Does Cameron she's vote? Voting. She's voting yeah. for. Uh, Did Cameron well, there kill was that God? moment. She seems like a non-voter yeah. to she me. She seems like a non-voter, but there was that moment when Donna was like, "Oh, for for a punk, she's such a conservative business person." And I was like, huh, you know what that makes me think of is a lot of, is like neo, neocons, that just that she's sort of so can't collaborate. She's like, my ideas are the best. She's very individualist. Yeah. I think that's a great question because, uh, you know, the thing about Cameron is she starts out as this kind of archetypical punk, you know? I mean, she, she literally has like a Clash poster on her wall in the second season, but it didn't feel honest to keep her that way in the third season. If Cameron in the third season is behaving just like Cameron in the first season, we're doing something wrong. You know, so so we're seeing her mature, we're seeing her get better at business and hold on to some of these insecurities, but it's got to be an evolution and huge credit to Mackenzie Davis for making sure uh, that we were always playing third season Cameron and not first or second season Cameron. So I think that's a great question. What is, what does that person grow up to be? You know, in in my experience it's either like a person in their late 30s who complains a lot or yeah maybe maybe somebody that does have some kind of outsized political opinions well there's also that thing with punks where a lot of them end up as conservatives at the end which is a horrifying thing that happens to (laughs) a lot of punk heroes where suddenly they are neocons and you're like oh i guess if you like to have like loud opinions that everybody listens to at a certain point you switch to like this other kind of loud opinion that's too funny if you just like pissing people off yeah well you're not particular about how you do it right you just want people to be you know respond 
strongly to what you have to say. And I do also think there is a thing in real Silicon Valley where sometimes women who want to kind of make it to the top are like, I'm going to be the fountainhead. I'm going to take this Ayn Rand mm, yeah. approach to life where <laughs> I'm just better than everybody else. I'm yeah, she like, does have a profound elitism, but she's also super into sharing and making yeah. everything democratic. And she's also incredibly talented and good at what she does. Yeah. Yeah. So she's not She's a walking bluffing. dichotomy. <laughs> she's a mess. Yeah. And again, to her credit, Mackenzie is such a great actress. Yes. And I love her scenes with Carrie. They are just uh, just great. They're and so much fun. Yeah, we should, I mean, we should talk about them, too, just for a second, too, because I think there's a um, dichotomy that's lifted out to us and kind of the feedback about that where people... Uh, who trend older of an older generation are strongly on Donna's side and feel that Cameron is just noisy and she's a mess and needs to figure her hair out and it needs to stop getting in Donna's way. Whereas people who are a little bit younger and maybe self-identify a little more with the, the punk rock of it all feel strongly that like, Oh, Donna's selling out in the man. And it's, it, it's very, like we try very hard not to make either one of them. Right. And I would say in this season, no, they're both right. We I feel mean, that way. But, yeah. And oh, yeah. I think it is very, it's a real thing That's that happens. That yeah. my friend was talking about, which is sort of like the clash of waves of feminism, mm-hmm. where somebody's like, the way to do it is to like get inside the building and be a spy, and then other people are like, no, you have to blow up the building. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah, but there's so many people that are, are that are both. I feel like. I mean, I feel like you see a lot of that. You see a lot of Cameron's like becoming Donna's, like for you know, for business purposes, like and trying to make their way in that world. And like it's sort of it, you know, you could also see these characters as like you know halves of. You know, sort of one, you know, one personality. Yeah, and I also way. liked uh, the Annabeth Gish. Is that her? Yeah, yeah. Name? Plays Diane. Mm-hmm. Diane. I also really liked bringing in a third lady uh, who kind of mm. represents aspects of both of them. She was and great. Yeah, she, she was, was really fantastic. She also had just great chemistry with with Toby Huss. Yeah, she, that was a lot of fun. And we, what we realized is that we put two-thirds of the cast of the leading cast of SLC Punk that <laughs> movie into oh. Halt and Catch Fire I wanted to Bat mention Lillard that also and Annabeth when Lillard showed up <laughs> every, every good story starts that way yeah. when Lillard yeah. showed up did you did you know did you think like hey we should get Matt Lillard for this or was it just like he came in Sharon Bialy uh, and Sherry Thomas our casting directors um, brought him in because he's great. Uh, and we saw him, and we were, so like, we were like, holy shit, it's Matt Lillard, and, and he had an incredible read that was just diff- a little different take on what we thought that character would be, but it felt very West Coast and very, like, but very accurate. Yeah. Um, he's from was, California somewhere, I think, right? I have I no idea, so, but, yeah. but uh, he was he was great. And so it was just Irvine so much fun to, he, to watch He did kind of what Toby Huss did in the first season, which yeah. was take well, a character like, who wasn't that like, exciting and, and make him He's kind of the Californian. Totally. I mean, the way that Toby Huss reads is so Texan. Like Matt Lillard read to me is just like so a Californian guy of that era who's mm-hmm. like, isn't this weird? I'm wearing a suit. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> when, when you bring like a name like that into your show you always have to think a little about the atomic weight of that and people being able to get over it but there was just something about no, Lillard, what he was to to folks that are our age in their early 30s you know he's underrated at this point yeah that, that it just it's one of the only times i've ever thought about like a person's career arc in in terms of how it belonged in our show and we we were thrilled with what we got from him yeah he's aged into such a cool looking character actor yeah. too he's one of, yeah. it's like I always like that when there's the guy who's like the young hot actor for a second and then you see them sort of on the other side of something and like because it started with like he was on the bridge too as like this yeah. alcoholic yeah, that journalist, journalist yeah. character on the bridge who I loved and I loved that it was like that they got someone who was like you know 
who you had an association with and you could almost you could remember them being young so you think of him as a little bit like you know past yeah. it like it's sort of perfect and then like he's sort of like, with the mustache it, it yeah. was fun to take him from like one of the people from the movie Hackers and then make him the money suit in Joe's company it was great it was a lot of fun mm-hmm. Uh, what is your favorite uh, terrible 90s movie about the 90s internet? And Doesn't it have to be The Net? I like Demolition Man. I'll defend The Net. I like Demolition Man, too. I feel like, I mean, like that's not really technology-based, but the technology that they have and the predictions they make are fantastic. That San Francisco and Los Angeles merge into one city called San Angeles. Uh, there's the three seashells in the bathroom that no one knows how to use. Yep. Demolition um, Man's a great movie. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It's, I feel like if you put that up against Judge Dredd, Demolition. Man I mean, I like win. all those cyberpunk movies of that yes. era. Yes, I'll just ride hard for Sandy and anything she's in. Uh, the net. You guys yeah. are such good Remember friends. Dennis Miller gets you like call her Sandy. He shot, but then he lives. Yeah, he's like one of the people that lives under the street. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's Dennis Leary in Demolition Man. I'm talking about Dennis Miller, Sandra Bullock's coworker. Is Sandra Bullock and, also in Demolition Man? Yes. 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 That's what that's I'm her trying first to say. Screen role. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe you mean Sandy. And Benjamin Bratt. Sandy. Sorry. Uh, if you're out there. Isn't there a lot of Taco Bell? Overseas, it's Pizza Hut. They changed it. And over overseas, in every foreign market, it's Pizza Hut. They don't have Taco but Bell. in America, it's Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. But it's still within the, the Yum Brands family of products. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's like, let's, let's stay in that product placement zone. Which is but. the weird crossover with like David Foster Wallace books, too. Yes. Like, that's high art, guys. That move. <laughs> Seriously, Remember, it's like literary. David Foster Wallace probably saw Demolition Man. Actually, he loved. I'm sure he, he loved Bad Movie. But yeah. Demolition Man's not a bad movie. Come it's on. not great. I mean, he just, it's you a know, great he, he movie. Just, he didn't go to see the movies you would expect David Foster Wallace. I would to be expect going to see him to go see Demolition That's Man because didn't he just watch the Brady Bunch for like five thousand hours at a time? Yeah, yeah and he, he really liked Alanis Morissette. He liked things that people like. Yeah. Terminator fan though. Big Terminator fan. Terminator One does not like Terminator Two. Yeah, he's great. I say about who doesn't like Terminator Two? David Foster Wallace. He's really a lot of issues with it. Rest his soul. That is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) No disrespect, but no disrespect, but Two is the best one. Thanks for coming in, Chris Cantwell. Christopher Cantwell and Christopher Rogers. Season finale is tonight. Unless you're listening to this on Wednesday, in which case it was last night. Or if you're listening to it 2,000 years in the future, it was in the past. It was a television show. <laughs> television was a thing people watched. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. Thank you. <laughs> See you next time. This episode of North Mollywood was produced by Michael Catano. Mukta Mohan and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.